Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles. Now we're in the Gospel of Mark as we move verse by verse through the Gospel. We've come to chapter 15, and we're going to be in a series for the next couple of chapters called The Passion of the Christ, The Passion of the Christ. Two, two uh, sections I'd like you to go ahead and turn to, to prepare yourself for what's ahead of us. That would be Mark 15 and Hebrews 12. So go ahead and hold a place in Mark 15 and Hebrews 12. Hebrews is going to be towards the back of your New Testament. Mark 15, Hebrews 12. And let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, we've come here hungry to hear from you, and we're going to hear from you today because we're going to open the Word of God. And we're confident that you are going to speak. All four gospel writers give us the account of the trial, scourging, and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could say, Lord, I think together right now that we are on holy ground. This is some hard ground as well because when we see what happened to you, it's hard to take. But we know why you did it. You did it for the joy that was set before you. You endured the suffering and took your stand for your people and for the glory, I believe, of pleasing your Father. And we're so grateful that it's done, it's over. This is never going to happen again. But we need to relive it. We need to look back at the cross for the cross is where you paid the sin debt in full and said it is finished. You shed your precious blood that we might be saved. And I pray that we'll set aside every distraction, every weight that we've brought into this place and we will have ears to hear what you would say to your church, Lord God, and that we'd align our lives to these truths. In Jesus' holy name I pray and all God's people said, amen. I want you to look back for a second. Look to the back wall. We put a scripture on the back wall. If you can all turn around. It says these words, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18. That scripture is there to remind every preacher that ever takes this pulpit that they are to preach unashamedly the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today as we uh, move through the Gospel of Mark. We have come now to the crucifixion account as it is recorded by Mark. I want to remind you that Mark gave us what we would consider a theme verse in Mark 10, 45, when Jesus spoke these words. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, remember, as a ransom for many. The gospel has been building towards this moment. Jesus has been agonizing over this moment. He's prophesied this moment. He agonized over the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, recoiling from not just the cross, but the beating associated with the cross and all the spiritual implications that would happen at the cross. But now the hour had come. He had said many times in his earthly ministry, the hour has not yet come, but now the time had come. Now it was time to pay the ransom price. The Greek word for ransom would be defined very much like we would define the English word ransom. And we've all probably heard, uh, seen movies, heard stories about a ransom being paid. Someone maybe uh, has a family member taken and, you know, someone kidnaps them for money or whatever they're trying to extort from somebody. And we've seen movies depict this and the drama associated with trying to gather money and, and get to a location to give a ransom price to buy our loved one back. Well, that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been building this theme that he's going to pay a ransom. 
He's going to shed his blood to buy us back from the slave market of sin. And it's going to be a hard thing. And I would just warn you ahead of time, some of the content this morning is a little hard to take, but we need to relive it. We need to look at the message of the cross, both to be reminded of what Christ did for us and his great love for us, and also to remember who we are in Jesus. When the writer of Hebrews addresses the Hebrew church in Hebrews chapter 12, this is a church that's going through difficulty. This is a Jewish church that is being persecuted and tempted to go back to the uh, temple and all that's associated with it. And the writer of Hebrews in 12.1 says these words, and I think this is part of the practical part of learning about the cross or being reminded. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith or our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. We need to consider the cross of Jesus Christ often. In fact, Paul, when he came into Corinth, said, uh, I knew nothing except Christ and him crucified. The center of what we do as a church, the message that we preach is hope in a death instrument, but it's not just about the death instrument, it's the one that's dying on that cross. The cross has become a symbol of hope And the hour to pay the price, the redemption price, has come. Jesus knew what was coming. And, you know, you could imagine as you read these events happen, it it had to be very difficult for him to know what was coming and still go through with it. After all, he was fully human. He knew all the details, all that was going to happen to him, and still had to face it. And I think this uh, knowledge amplifies and intensifies what he was feeling as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here he has come to this time. We, re- we must remember that this day is over. The price has been paid in full. But it is written in the scripture and the annals of history for us to remember. Time will not forget. And time doesn't even forget the multiple players that were there on that day. There were religious leaders. There was a political leader named Pilate and Herod. There were the people. There were the casual onlookers and those who were intensely faithful to Jesus Christ. There were followers of Barabbas there that day who had come to appeal to the governor for his release. And the governor would say to the crowd, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And that is a question that every man, woman, and child must face. The message of the cross, as I mentioned, is foolishness to those who are perishing But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We must never stop preaching it, never stop pointing people to the hope of the cross, and never stop even turning our question marks in life into the cross. Because if God loves us this much, if God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, then we can have hope that we can continue to live this life even in the difficult times. It's been said that you don't understand Christ until you understand the cross, but I would argue even further, you will not understand this world and what's going on with humanity until you understand the cross of Jesus Christ. I believe the cross should always be on our lips and always be talked about. 
I went home a few nights ago and I uh, uh, stumbled upon a movie called Miracles. I think it's called Miracles from Heaven. It's one of these intriguing stories of a near-death experience. And uh, we got a call recently on the Bible Answer Show and someone was asking about the validity of these things and what to make of them. And in each case, I think you have to take on the merits of what's said and the evidences. But this particular case, some of you have heard about it. It was a little girl... She's 10 years old. She lived on a farm with her family and she came down with this uh, terrible digestive disease. And what was happening is, is that just her digestive system was not working properly. She's finally taken to a specialist in Boston where, you know, he, he's like the top guy. But he tells the mom early in the, the story that, look, there's no cure for this. There's multiple kids who have this and there's no cure. We don't know how to cure it, but all we can do is try to take away her pain and try to you know, find ways to, to ease the situation. And it, it becomes evident in the storyline of the movie that the little girl's going to die. She's only 10. And for a while, she's really encouraging her mom. She's telling mom it's going to be okay. The Lord's got us in his hands and she wears a cross necklace. But as the movie turns and the little girl's pain gets more terrible and tough to take, she starts to lose hope. And she goes into a depression. In the middle of, of what I saw in the movie, there's a scene where the little girl is there with the digestive problem with her mom. Her mom's struggling with all kinds of issues of faith, although she seems to be a believer. And there's a little girl with cancer in the next bed in the hospital room. So they begin to strike up a friendship and they begin to talk. And at one point, the little girl with the digestive problem says to the girl with cancer, um, I have hope because I know Jesus is with me. And the little girl with cancer says, do you think he's with me too? And she says, yes, I do. Well, they're going to do a procedure on the little girl that has the digestive problem. And they ask her to take off her cross necklace. And it's a bit of a struggle for her. She doesn't like taking it off. But she agrees and she hangs the cross necklace. They hang it on the, the liquids that are feeding her. And so, you know, there's some attention paid to the cross necklace and they begin to do the procedure and all of a sudden the girl says, you know what, I want to give you this cross and she offers it to the little girl with cancer that looks about the same age. And she goes, really? And so she receives the cross and then her father walks in. This is the father of the cancer patient and he sees what's going on and he sees the cross and he goes, she goes, look daddy and he, you can tell he's not happy. And so he calls the mom out into the hallway and he says, look, I need to talk to you and this is who I am. I'm her father and you just need to know something. Uh, I have a problem with this cross necklace being given to my daughter. That's not our thing. I don't want to give her any false hope. And the mom even says, well, I'm struggling with hope too, so I totally understand. So as the movie goes on, the little girl ends up, she, she goes home basically to die and she's out in the, this backyard and she climbs up a tree that they used to play, play on. She's about three stories up and all of a sudden a branch gives way and she falls into the middle of a hollowed out tree and she hits the bottom and uh, there's no way to get to her. They're afraid to cut down the tree. It might kill her. So they, it takes all day. They finally pull her out. And when she's pulled out, she, she, it's miraculous. She has no broken bones, no, no internal bleeding, no serious head trauma, nothing. And in fact, as they watch her in the next few days and weeks, she is showing signs that she's been healed of the digestive problem. They take her back to the specialist, show her. He does all the, uh, the tests and he says... I don't know what to tell you, but she doesn't have this problem anymore. Her stomach's flat. She's been healed. 
And so, as the movie unwinds uh, and you come to the end, there's a church service back in the hometown and the mom gets up to speak and she says, I haven't been here for a long time. This is what's happened with my daughter. There's media there. The church is packed. People have heard the story. And after she tells the story and the little girl comes up all healthy and stuff, someone in the congregation, you can understand it, stands up and says, was she really that sick? Did she really have a terminal disease? Because, you know, people are trying to do these kind of stories. Who knows what their motives are? Maybe they want to make money. Is this really true? And all of a sudden, in the back of the church, a man stands up. And the man is the father of that little girl who had cancer. And he goes, I want to tell you something. I've come here from Boston. He says, that little girl that was in the room with her died two weeks ago. She's my daughter. And I can tell you this, I was in that room and this little girl was that sick. And this little girl did something for my daughter that can never be replaced. This little girl gave my daughter faith. And she's given me faith as well. The man stands up in the middle of that congregation and gives a testimony of his belief in Jesus Christ. You know, the cross, it seems to polarize people, doesn't it? There's some people that you mention the cross too and they're right with you and they're, they're right on board and there's other people that, man, just the mention of the cross of Jesus Christ is a problem. In fact, you'll find in history that some of the Roman historians said that the cultured Romans didn't even want to talk about the cross. They didn't want the word on their lips. They despised the idea, but it was the Roman way to put people in their place. The Romans would often crucify people on public roads, on main uh, walkways to the market and stuff. And it was a warning for anyone who was seditious against the Romans. It was a public way of saying, don't mess with us. It was a way of enforcing their so-called peace with the fist. Jim Caviezel played the part of Jesus Christ in the movie The Passion of the Christ that was done by Mel Gibson some years ago. Jim Caviezel, when he agreed to take the part, was having a conversation with Mel Gibson on the telephone. And Mel said, you know, this may cost your career. And Jim said, you know, I've been considering that. And I think he said, I've been praying about it. And oh, by the way, I'm 33 years old and my initials are JC for Jim Caviezel. And Gibson said, you're freaking me out. They both hung up the phone. Well, Caviezel agreed to do the film. And by all that I can see, he's a very committed believer. And he said when they were filming the scenes of Jesus on the cross, he went through, he described it as spiritual warfare, but he went through a lot of difficult things. He suffered a separated shoulder, suffered from hypothermia, and was struck by lightning while he was on the cross. He said he was being interviewed by an interviewer, and the interviewer was asking him about all of these things, and Caviezel responds, he says, it was so cold, it was like knives coming through me. He said, I had hypothermia. I don't, I don't know whether you've dealt with that, but on one day of hypothermia, I was so cold I could barely get the lines out. My mouth was shaking uncontrollably. My arms and legs went numb. I was suffocating on that cross. In the meantime, you watch people. They're having coffee. They're laughing. They were very indifferent about what I was going through. And the actor says in what he experienced on the, in the filming of the cross, he, he got a deeper appreciation for what Jesus went through, but it's nowhere near, and he admits, of obviously nowhere near what Jesus went through. And the interviewer says, the whipping and the scourging are hard to watch because that goes on for so long. He says, I was literally counting the lashes. I watched people in the theater in front of me, a small viewing theater, turn their faces away because they couldn't continue to look. And Caviezel responds, you said something very critical there. 
People turn their eyes away when they see it. And what they're seeing is their own sin. Now think of this. This is a Hollywood actor. He says it's not wanting to deal at times with their own sin. It's hard to look at. But this film forces you to see yourself not the way you want to see yourself, but as God sees you. There are no passive onlookers here. Close quote. And I just went, wow. When I read that interview, I was thinking, Jim Caviezel is preaching the gospel. He is saying, look, the truth is going to hit you right between the eyes as you have to deal with the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ uh, did face the cross and he had to face it sadly alone, but his father never left him alone. He had moments on the cross when he had that forsaken cry, but he said, my father is always with me. He was rejected with their spite, the spite of the religious leaders. They spit at him. They've already uh, blindfolded him and hit him with blows in the face over and over again. He's swollen. He's bloodied. He's probably been all night in mul- up all night without sleep in multiple all-night trials. And now he will come before Pontius Pilate. The cross in many ways, becomes a mirror for people. It's a mirror to look at your soul, to look at your life and ask yourself about this message of the cross. I heard a story about an Indian chief and uh, she came to a mission statement station and she was hanging outside the missionary's hut and on a tree was a little mirror. The chief happened to look into the mirror and saw her reflection, complete with the terrifying paint and threatening features. She gazed at her own frightening countenance and started back in horror, exclaiming, Who is the horrible person looking at me from inside that tree? Oh, the missionary said, It's not in the tree. The glass is reflecting your face, your own face. The chief would not believe it until she held the mirror in her hand. She said, I must have this glass. How much will you sell it for? Oh, said the missionary, I don't want to sell it. It's not for sale. But the woman begged until finally he capitulated, thinking it might be the best way to avoid trouble. So he named a price and she took the mirror, exclaiming, I will never have it making faces at me again. She threw down the mirror and broke it into pieces. This is precisely what the religious establishment did with Jesus Christ. They would dash the mirror of their souls. They nailed him to a cross only to find that this particular action magnified the reflection even more. You can try to break him. You can try to curse him. You can try to destroy him. But you will never change the truth of the cross. History will never forget. God will never forget. And we should never forget. Verse 1, Mark 15. And in the early morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, immediately held a consultation. It's morning. And the consultation was about how they could bring a charge against Jesus that would stick and get him crucified. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him up to Pilate. They did this early in the morning because the Roman governor um, had a schedule. And his schedule was to take care of all of his business early in the morning. And then the rest of his day was leisure. So very early in the morning, any court cases that would come his way, he would hear. Now the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, lived in a place called Caesarea Maritime. It literally means Caesarea by the sea. You can go there today. There's ruins there today. It's right on the Mediterranean Sea. And he had a home there. He had headquarters there. But in, during the feast, he would come to Jerusalem and he would stay in the castle of Herod. Within the castle was a place called the Praetorium. 
It was kind of like the governor's mansion when he was away from home. He would go there during the feast because the feast of Israel, remember Israel was considered occupied territory, so the Romans were there, but they, they weren't a friendly visitor. They, they were over the government, over the people, basically had them in bondage, though they had a certain amount of freedom. So what would happen is Pilate would make his way to Jerusalem, stay in this uh, area called Herod's Castle, and make sure that there were no bad things that happened during the feast. And what would happen during the feast is this was a time when people were feeling very nationalistic. It was the Passover season, which reminded the children of Israel of what? of deliverance from Egypt by ten mighty plagues. Here they have the Romans there, so there was all kind of nationalistic fervor. They say there were a lot of incidences that happened during the feast where uh, insurrectionists would rise up, they would name somebody a king or a so-called Messiah, and they would try to do guerrilla warfare or even just try to take on the Roman soldiers to get them out of their land. So the tension was high at these moments and biblical uh, critics have said there's no evidence for a man named Pontius Pilate, uh, no evidence that there was ever such a character. And then in 1961, there was an archaeological discovery by Caesarea Maritime, if we could put it up on the screen, and it's called the Pilate Stone. The Pilate Stone has an inscription that names Pontius Pilate as the prefect of Judea, exactly what the Bible says. And uh, if you go to the next one, and we'll have a little bigger, uh, farther away view of it. This is a replica of the stone, but it has Pilate's name on it. And history has revealed that Pilate reigned in this position from A.D. 26 to 36. Jesus died around 30 to 33 A.D., And so he definitely was uh, the man who was ruling at this time. The Jews, uh, Mark 15, 1, held this consultation because it would appear that they could pronounce a death sentence, a capital sentence, but not carry it out. There's a little debate here because we do see times in the New Testament when it seems like they could stone somebody. For example, the woman caught in the act of adultery, they were ready to stone her until Jesus stopped that. There's a couple of occasions where they want to stone Jesus and it wasn't his hour so he's able to get away. So it seemed like they had the ability to do some sort of execution, but I think they had a very specific execution in mind. I think they wanted to put Jesus on the cross to make a statement. The Old Testament says, Cursed is anyone who uh, hangs upon a tree. They wanted to put him on a cross to humiliate him and to convince the people that he could not be the Messiah. He was under the curse of God. And interestingly enough, in some ways he was. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Jesus Christ became a curse for us. For cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And Jesus was taking the curse of sin. He was bearing in his body our punishment. He was taking the wrath of God. So in some ways, I think you could say he was bearing the curse. So they had to figure out a way to take Jesus to the Roman governor and convince the governor that Jesus was guilty of what they would call high treason. This would be acts against the state. And the Romans would take very seriously if they heard a couple of things. If they heard that you were trying to rally troops or you called yourself some sort of king or deliverer, that's what they were concerned about. And Pilate was there for that really very reason to make sure he would quell any such uprisings. So they came to Pilate and they presented their case before him. And it is clear that Pilate has been briefed that Jesus is some sort of king. In John 18, 28, if you turn there for a second, uh, turn to John 18. Pilate is, the praetorium is being mentioned here, and Pilate is interacting with Jesus. Let's go to John 18. 
And we'll pick it up at verse 33. Pilate is in an area that would be called the judgment hall. And verse 2 of Mark 15 has Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? John gives us a little bit more detail. In verse 33 of John 18, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? John 18, 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king? Jesus had been beaten and probably wasn't terribly impressive at this point. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him in these famous words, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Now the reason he had to go in and out is because the Jews refused to go into this place because they didn't want to be defiled They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They didn't want to go into a Gentile residence. Ironic, isn't it? They're about to kill the Son of God, bring false charges against Him, defile themselves in every way, morally speaking, that we could think of, yet they didn't want to enter into into a building that they might not be defiled. They were so concerned about eating a Passover meal while they were killing the Passover lamb. Incredible. But this is how bad it had gotten for the religious leadership. They would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They were so lost in their tradition, they couldn't even see the truth right in front of them. Interestingly enough, if you turn back to Mark 15, Pontius Pilate, we do know a little bit, we have some tradition, it comes from Eusebius, and Eusebius, who's writing several centuries later, says that Pontius Pilate had a a turn in his career some years later and and Pontius Pilate had had a difficult time ruling over Judea and so forth and I'll mention a few things in a moment. But the evidence that we have is that Pontius Pilate just a few years after his interaction with Jesus Christ committed suicide. I want you to think about that. Here's a man who had the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life right in front of him and yet he said, what is truth? And then the evidence is that he just simply walked away. Did he think about this anymore? I have no idea, but he ends his life apparently in a suicide and he lived in a culture very much like the Greek pantheon where they had gods and goddesses for everything. The gods and goddesses fought. You had to appease them. And Pilate, I think, was just a cynic. He wasn't an atheist. He lived in a culture where people believed stuff about false gods, but for him, he was confused. He's like, what is truth? Which, which is the right God? Who knows what this stuff is? Here's a man living in cultured opulence, but he's lost. But Jesus has caught his attention. And Pilate questioned him, Mark 15, 2, are you the king of the Jews? And answering, he said to him, it is as you say. When Jesus was asked if he was this king, Jesus did say, I am this king. Pilate uh, apparently uh, married into this position by marrying a woman named Claudia Procula, who was the granddaughter of the Emperor Augustus. He moved into this political position of power and the people who witnessed Pilate's life and knew things about him said that he was an unflexible guy. He was inflexible, pretty mean. 
He had no problem putting people to death on the spot. He was kind of this relentless, mean guy. But when he interacts with Jesus, he seems to know that something's going on, that there's something deeper here. He had made all kinds of religious uh, or you know, political problems uh, for the Jews. He brought banners into the holy city and the Jews thought that that was like a, 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 an act of paganism or an act of idolatry. He killed people while they were in the middle of worship to get back at some people. He took out of the Corbin treasury to build an aqueduct in Rome or in, uh, in the city. And so just all kinds of things that he did. And as I mentioned, it looks like he ended his life a few years later in suicide. And so Jesus is before Pilate and the chief priests are there, verse 3, Mark 15, and they began to accuse him harshly. Mark does not give us the details, but we have them in Luke 23. Write down verse 2 and 5 through 7. I'll just give you what they say. They began to accuse him. They said, we have found this man misleading our nation. He forbids people to pay taxes to Caesar. And he says that he himself is Christ a king. They kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. This man, now, was any of this true? Of course, they were all, it was a pack of lies. And they knew that they were lies. But the subject of Galilee came up, and Pilate had an epiphany. He went, oh, he's a Galilean? Oh, I'll send him to Herod. He's under Herod's jurisdiction. And so all of a sudden, the other gospel writers fill in the blanks, and Jesus was sent to Herod. And remember, Herod was excited. Do you remember this? Herod was like, oh, I want to see him. Maybe he'll do a trick. Maybe he'll do a miracle in front of me. And Jesus came to Pilate, and Pilate or Herod, and Herod questioned him, and Jesus never spoke to him once. He never said a word to him. He wouldn't even allow Herod to hear his voice. Regal silence is all Herod got. Herod sends him back to Pilate, says, I found nothing deserving of death in this man, and back to Pilate, Jesus went. And so here's what happens. Pilate was questioning him again, verse 4, Mark 15, and he said, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, Jesus did answer questions about his identity. In the earlier chapter, chapter 14, 16, 61 and 62, he answers the high priest question, are you the son of the blessed one? He answers Pilate's question about his identity, but he did not answer any of the questions about it, the false charges. He wouldn't even go there. He wouldn't try to defend himself. Now, if you were in that position and you knew a cross was ahead of you, if you give the wrong answer, would you stay silent? What, what Pilate was used to was people begging and pleading for their lives. No, that's false. I never did that. Here's my mom and my brothers to give testimony. No, please hear me. He was so used to people arguing and groveling and pleading and crying. And Jesus, though innocent, does not respond to one charge. And that's why Pilate was amazed. I'm sure Pilate was prepared for all the typical maneuverings that a person would give in this kind of situation. And, you know, we have a tough time when someone's got a story half wrong. We want to correct them before they finish a sentence. No, 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 no. You, you got it wrong, man. And Jesus wouldn't even respond to one thing. He was silent as a sheep is silent before it shears. And so Pilate was amazed and the feast was here, it was the Passover, and at the feast he used to release, verse 6 for them, any one prisoner whom they requested. They had an annual thing that they did, and Pilate 
in a moment of graciousness, you could say from the governor, he would release a prisoner and he would let them name the prisoner. So in the meantime, as we read the other gospel writers, we, we find out that there's some other things happening. In Matthew's gospel, we hear that Pilate's wife has had a dream. She said, I've suffered many things because of this man in a dream last night, have nothing to do with this righteous man. She sends him a note. She warns Pilate, I've had a premonition, I've had a dream, don't mess around with this. So Pilate wants to get away. No less than five times during these proceedings, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. But they would not hear it. And so now it's come up that they have this annual thing where they release a prisoner and they had a man named Barabbas. He had been in prison with the insurrectionists, one of these uprisings that would happen quite commonly. He'd committed murder and insurrection. Everybody look at verse 7 in your Bible. See the name Barabbas. There's two words there that are going to be familiar to you. It's the word bar, it's the word for son, and Abba is the word for father. So Barabbas' name, when you translate it, means son of the father. There's some early manuscripts that say that Barabbas' name was actually Jesus. The New English Bible uh, translates a verse in Matthew that says he was named Jesus Barabbas. Now, don't let that throw you off. Jesus was a very common name in the day. You were really known by whose son you were. So Jesus Barabbas, if that was indeed his name, means Jesus, son of the father. Now, get this. The people, as you well know, are going to end up asking for Barabbas to be released, who's a murderer and an insurrectionist, and ask for Jesus, the true son of the father, to be crucified. Why do they do that? Well, there were people that were there, and I'm sure they were there with signs, release Barabbas. I'm sure he was a hero to them. He was a, he was a political revolutionary. He was a, a, a man of the nation. He was doing something to help the nation, at least. So the people were thinking, this guy's a hero. He's a patriot. We want him released. And get this, Barabbas becomes a type of a replacement Messiah. He's a Messiah made in our image. Jesus Christ rides in on a colt, not a war horse. He's coming to die on a cross. No, no, no. We want a patriot. So that's part of the reason why they asked for Barabbas. But the interesting play, poetry, if you will, is that the name means son of the father. In fact, his name may have been Jesus. Jesus bar Abbas. And in our world, isn't it true that so many people, they want a replacement Messiah? They don't like how Jesus is working for them or they don't like certain parts of the Bible. You'll confront people with certain parts of the Bible. You know, Jesus said this, oh, I don't like that. Well, that's what he said. That's just as true as John 3.16. If he claims to be the singular way to God, that's just as true as other verses that you seem to like. Oh, no, no, no. And they make a Savior, get this, in their own image. A, a different type of Savior. But Jesus won't be molded into our images. We have to take him for who he is. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate's thinking, this is great. I have an opportunity to release this man. I know he's innocent. My wife has warned me not to have anything to do with this righteous man. Here's an opportunity of a lifetime. I know he's popular. He's been doing miracles. He's called the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. There's a rumor going around that he's raised this man who was dead four days in the tomb. Certainly... 
At the religious Passover, the people of Israel will release Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. But they weren't having any of it. The chief priests went around, and of course they stirred up the crowd. And Pilate was aware of all that was going on. He knew that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up because of envy, verse 10. But the chief priests stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him you call king of the Jews? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ, Matthew says? And they shouted back sadly, Crucify him! But Pilate was saying to them, Isn't it interesting? The Roman governor who's known as a pretty relentless, tough man is begging for Jesus' life. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. In a chilling parallel account, they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. John 18, verse 40. And so now Jesus has been put in this position where he's going to be condemned. This was God's plan, of course, all along. And wishing, verse 15, to satisfy the multitude. Would you all mark that in your Bible? How many people have missed the opportunity of a lifetime? They have missed pleasing the Lord, standing for Him in their generation because they wish to satisfy the multitude. So much in our society today, I don't have to tell you about political correctness, do I? About polls that are taken. You know, even on social media, we're all curious, right? It could be about our football team. It could be about a political issue. It could be about something spiritual. And we want to read people's comments, right? Oh, what does so-and-so say? Oh, well, they say, that. oh, he's mad at him. Oh, they're mad. <laughs> and we're worried about what the multitude thinks. And Pilate is now in eternity. And he did what he did to satisfy the multitude. Look, he had the veto power here. He could have said No. But he let the pressure and the words of those religious leaders make him fearful. Don't do things out of fear, brothers and sisters. If Jesus can take a stand here, then you can take a stand for him at work, in your family. You can do it by the power of Jesus Christ. And so they released Barabbas for them, and after, after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Uh, I want to tell you that just reading about scourging doesn't tell you half the story. It was the most terrifying uh, punishment and thing that you could go through. What the Romans did is they took a couple of whips. They would have two soldiers that did this and they would tie you up to a post so that you were taut or tight against it. Sometimes your feet would be dangling. Sometimes they would just throw you to the ground. And they would take what was called two scourgets or cat of nine tails or what's called in Latin the flagellum. And two soldiers would take them. They had a little wooden handle. At the end of the, oh, the, the ropes or straps that were attached to them, they had lead, pieces of lead and bone. And they would begin to whip your back. And as they whipped you, the bone and lead would grab your flesh and begin to tear you apart. There's stories from Josephus and Eusebius that say that just victims of scourging alone, there was no minimum or maximum times you could be hit. It was pretty much up to the soldiers and the commander that was over them. Uh, people would just die on the spot. It would, I'm not, I don't want to gross you out too much, but you need to hear what happened to him. It opened up his flesh to such a degree that ancient writers say often the inner organs of people were exposed just from scourging alone. And Jesus was hit with that terrible 
flagellum after he had already been slugged and punched and spit upon. Isaiah 52.14 is now a little bit more clear when it says he was so disfigured that he was marred beyond human likeness. There is Jesus. Pilate has placated the people. And here is Jesus now taking this terrible beating. He was beat pretty badly because we know that he needed help when he was carrying the cross. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the Praetorium 16. We're just going to go to verse 20. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. This is soldiers likely quartered as a detachment in this area, protecting Pilate, ready to respond to uprisings. And a Roman cohort could be hundreds of soldiers, possibly 600 soldiers. Can you imagine if it were you? Can you imagine being beaten, bloodied, whipped by this terrible whip and now having soldiers surround you as they enter into a game of mocking? You say, well, how could these guys be so evil? Look, they were war-torn soldiers. They were held up in this praetorium just waiting for the next uprising. For them, it was an opportunity to have a little bit of fun and they had been listening in. They knew that people, uh, you know, he had been called the king of the Jews. They knew the back and forth and so they decided to have some fun with Jesus and they dressed him up in purple and they wove a crown of thorns they, that they had put on him. Uh, those who have studied th- these kinds of things say the spikes come from a plant uh, that is known to have 12-inch spikes. And they, they didn't do it, to I don't think, to hurt him, but it did hear, hurt him as they drove the crown of thorns into his head. He's probably bleeding profusely from his head. His body's been opened up. He's been slugged in the face over and over and over again. And they began to acclaim him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. The, the Romans had a way of greeting Caesar. They would say, Ave, Ave Caesar. It's almost like if you've seen in the movie, Heil Hitler. That's what they would do for the Caesar. They would say, Hail, and they would often walk by the Caesar. Hail, or they, or they would salute. And so what they're doing is they're doing a mock coronation of this so-called king. The Bible tells us they put the crown of the thorns on his head. They mocked him. They kept beating him in the head. Some of the gospel writers said they took the mock scepter out of his hand and beat him in the head with it and then put it back in his hand. They took the reed. They spit at him, spit in his face. And as they passed 19, they kneeled and they bowed before him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews, Hail! There's other gospel writers that seem to indicate that again and again some would slug him, some would hit him with the stick. And he's standing there for you and for me. Bleeding. I don't even know how he stood anymore. How did he stand there? How did he take all of these blows? Why would he do this? 1 John 3.16 says these words. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Can I ask you a question? You know I, know, I know we all have problems in this room, right? I know we have our, our crosses with quotes around them. But when you see the suffering of Jesus Christ, the next time you want to complain about something, the next time, you know, it's hard to let somebody into traffic, the next time maybe you have a little ache and pain or whatever it might be, you might want to rethink and take another look at this scene. This is what Jesus went through for you. And he hasn't even been crucified yet. This is amazing love. And this is a a man 
the God-man who is willing to go through this because he so loved you that he gave up his life. Writers say that when they passed Jesus by, they were in essence saying, your kingliness is a joke. We spit on you as a king. Isaac Watts puts it well when he says, did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Finally, the Bible tells us that Pilate had him scourged because he thought maybe it would bring some sympathy from the crowd. Remember, he's still trying to get out of this. So he had him scourged as a punishment, I think John's gospel says, and he presented Jesus before the people. Now remember, he's marred beyond even recognition as a human. And he said, behold the man. And he was expecting a pitiful response. But there would be no mercy on this day. No pity on this day. And Jesus would be led away to be crucified. Pilate, in essence, was saying, take a good look, take a hard look. Do you have any pity? And I think it's always important for us to revisit the cross to take a hard look at God's love for us. And after they had mocked him, final verse, they took the purple off of him, the robe, they put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. He would go now on the way of sorrows, the Via Dolorosa. Why the cross? Because we're reconciled by the blood of the cross reconciled back to God, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why the cross? Because we're sinners. And sin must be atoned for. And it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That's why he died on the cross for you. And he says, when you're going through your life and you're having difficulty, remember that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He despised the shame. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's for you. He understands when you're suffering. He understands when you go through loss and difficulty. You know, we're, we're not going to get all the answers this side of heaven, but I'll tell you this. We have a Savior who knows pain. We have a Savior who knows betrayal. And the Bible says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Father, thank you again for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is sometimes very sobering and very hard to take. But we know that this scene is over. Jesus will never go through this again. We revisit it to learn. We revisit it to remember. But you're alive. Three days later, Sunday came. (laughs) And you rose from the dead, Lord. And you're triumphant over sin and death. And you are at the right hand of God cheering us on. Help us to keep running, to keep walking, to keep taking our stands. We lift up our brothers and sisters in other churches and countries that may be going through a lot of difficult situations. Lord, we know people in our own sphere who may be facing their own crosses. May you, may your everlasting pierced arms hold them up so that they might make it through. If you're here and you have not met Jesus, keep your heart and head bowed. If you died tonight, do you know you'd be in heaven? Make sure. It takes a moment. You know, the price has been paid. You can't add to it. You just have to receive it. And it's something like this. And if it's you, and you're not sure where you're headed, make sure. Something like this. Jesus prayed if it's you, come into my life. Thank you that you went to that cross for me. Thank you that you love me that much. 
Forgive me of my sins and failures. Forgive me for taking my own path and ignoring your ways of getting my attention. I repent of my sin and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Don't wait, my friend. Pray it now. I believe you died on that cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I trust my life to you, my soul. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. If you need to rededicate your life, now would be the time. I think God will give you the words. And for all the precious saints that are here, may this reminder cheer you on to love and to good deeds. I pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.